Psalm 115 verse 3 reads, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Hello, welcome back to Faith Bible Church's podcast called Think This Way. I am Bryce Beal, one of the five pastors here at Faith Bible Church, and I have another with me, Dan Gielock. Dan, thanks for being here again. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Dan is here, and that's good, because we are dealing with some heavyweight theological stuff today. We today are talking about what's popularly called Calvinism. At Faith Bible Church, our position theologically on the sovereignty or the control of God over the world is known as Calvinism. That is not because we have some unusual attachment to the man John Calvin, the reformer in the 16th century. Although we appreciate his Bible commentaries, we're not Calvinists because of him. We believe his views preceded him all the way back to Paul. But anyways, this is a tough topic, so we wanted to address it. And I've titled this talk today, Am I a Robot? If you know anything about Calvinism and the debate between Calvinism, Arminianism, the sovereignty of God and what that means, then you know that this is something that people encountering the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty wrestle with and are charged with by others. Calvinism, just so that you know what we're talking about, call it whatever you want to call it. You don't even have to call it Calvinism. But the view that we're talking about is that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases and that includes exercising control in some way over the wills of men and women. That is Calvinism. It means God has a complete control. It doesn't answer all of the mysteries of if God's totally in control, why are there bad things? Well, there's a lot to address there. That's Calvinism. The alternative view that is popular today is called Arminianism. Arminianism is, uh, we won't get into all of it, but it was a man in the 17th century named Jacobus Arminius, and his idea was, in essence, that God has control over everything except human wills. And the reason is, if God exercised control over your will, then you would not be free, you would be a robot. That was his view. So in his view, God has control, but not over your will. Instead, God looks forward through the corridors of time. He foresees who's going to trust in him. He doesn't make them do it. He foresees it and makes his decisions on that basis. So we then, in that way of looking at things, have a completely free will where we are the final deciders of what we're going to do. So that is the view called Arminianism. All right, what I've got in front of me are two pages of lots and lots and lots of verses. Part of the reason for that is this is such a contentious issue that sometimes we forget to just go right to Scripture, and that's what we're going to do. I want to begin, though, by making this a little more personal. I know we just talked about some big words. And so I'm going to turn this over to you, Dan. I just wanted to ask, in your own experience with Calvinism— when did you first encounter it, and what did you think of it? Well, that's a great question, and I'm very happy to answer that. I was not born into a godly Christian family. Um, I actually intended to go to a church with evil intent in mind, and God, because he is sovereign, <laughs> there you go. he had another plan. I was welcome, fed, and patiently endured by great 
God-fearing Christians who loved me into the kingdom and taught God's word from the perspective that you and I might call Calvinism. Well, because of that, it made sense to me that since the written word said that these truths were plainly from God's perspective, I accepted them even before I was a believer. But the most significant part to me was that for a year, my innate, my inherent and insidious pride and defensiveness was torn down for a year because I believed what the Bible said, that we are affected by sin in all of our parts, including our wanter. And so in that spring evening, when I was sitting with a friend and it came to me that it wasn't just theoretical, it was me, it was personal. I am a sinner. I loved my sin. I am an enemy of God. Those truths that were taught to me for that year came home. And so while I first call myself a Christian, yeah, I'm a Calvinist because I believe that the Bible taught that. So it wasn't a difficulty for me. Now, my wife and I, before we were married, went to a Christian college and there were lots of different Christians there from different backgrounds. And that's when I first learned that there were some people who really struggled over these concepts. Yeah, thank you, Dan. That gives a little flesh and bone to this discussion. This is not just some abstract theology. This touches us in real life. We all have to deal with what we're going to think of God's power, his control over the world, how far it extends. You had an interesting experience where being brought up, just hearing it, like you said, in the Bible, it went, oh, of course, there it is in the Bible. For many people who do adopt the view of Calvinism, maybe this is too general a statement, this is often the case that it's the Bible itself at some point. Certainly having people around us who hold this view has a big, big, big influence. But I often hear stories how the Bible itself overcomes us and our initial objections. So just to offer a few of those stories that come to my mind, one is the famous theologian philosopher Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is well known today as, even in secular circles, as one of the greatest theologian philosophers of all time, and certainly the greatest that America ever produced, and he was strongly Calvinistic. However, he did not begin that way. In fact, he says of himself when he first encountered this idea that God has full control over everything, including people, he says he hated that doctrine. But over time, again, through the scriptures, he came to a point where later he could say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. That's Edwards. Edwards' sort of reincarnation, if I can use that word today, is John Piper. Many people know him. And John Piper is uh, one of the biggest advocates, if you will, of Calvinism among younger people uh, today and have got, has gotten a lot of people excited about this high view of God theology. Piper, as well, hated this doctrine, actually, in college. He hated it, and he had a professor who argued for this view of God's sovereignty. And Piper says he remembers taking a pencil to his professor, you remember that, and dropping it and saying, I dropped the pencil. <laughs> his point is, I made that decision. You can't tell me God is controlling everything. It was my decision. And of course, today, Piper's view is uh, heavily that God is fully in control of all things. We'll get to that. I want to give one last story. It's actually my own mother 
She also came from a background that was not Calvinistic in view. And she talked about how when she started encountering these doctrines, she really struggled because it came down for her to her own children. If God really is the ultimate decider of our salvation, it's not us, it's him then what if God doesn't decide in favor of her children's salvation? So she was partly resistant from an emotional point of view. But what she did is she got a concordance of the Bible and she looked up predestined, election, these these hot button words just to see the verses. And she was not friendly toward them. She's just looking them up. And there were so many and they were so clear. She talks about one day, she was taking a shower in the morning. She gets into the shower, not believing these doctrines, and she gets out of the shower, <laughs> believing them. <laughs> so I just want to point out that as we're talking about these views, we all come from different backgrounds, and this is something we're all wrestling with. So if you hear this and you go, oh, I don't know, I'd call myself a Calvinist right away, keep reading the Bible. Amen. Amen and Amen. To that end, that's what we're going to do right now. I have a lot of verses before me, and what I've tried to do is just give you a collection. These are not um, just selectively chosen from one part of the Bible, and all the rest of the Bible is against them. No, these are throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, and pretty comprehensive, telling us that God's control is over everything. So let me just start going through this. And then we'll move on from there more to the question of if this does tell us God's in control of everything, does that make us robots? We have to address that. So let me just get started here. Let's begin with some general statements about God's control. Here's the one we started the podcast with, one of my favorite, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And keep that word all in your mind because you're going to see that multiple times in these verses. It's not he does some of what he pleases. He's in heaven and he does all that he pleases. Here's another Psalm, 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deep. So I hope you see again the universal language not all, but whatever he pleases, he does. And notice it's everywhere. It's in heaven, earth, in the seas, all deeps. That's everywhere. Here's Nebuchadnezzar when God humbled that great Babylonian king in Daniel 4.35, makes this amazing statement. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So there you see that God's will can't be resisted. No one can stay his hand. That's Old Testament. Here's New Testament. Ephesians 1.11 speaks of, quote, the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So those are general statements about God's control. And whatever view you take of God's sovereignty, you have to deal with those verses. You have to try to understand those. Now let's get a little more specific. That's God controlling, you saw universally, all things everywhere. But we can divide up God's control. First, we can talk about God's control over the physical world. This actually is not controversial. Whatever your view of God's control, 
within evangelical orthodox belief, you probably don't have a problem with this. Just think about Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God has complete control. He made everything. He just says, let there be, and there is. That's over the created world. Think about, fast forward, the exodus, all of the plagues that God brings upon the land of Egypt. When you read that, you assume that's God doing that. Yes, he's making the gnats. He's turning the water into blood. He's making things fall out of the sky. He's bringing this plague. He's bringing this locust. He has control over all parts of the natural world. Then he parts the Red Sea in half, and no one says, how did that happen? No, he does that because he has control over the Red Sea. New Testament, Matthew 8, 27, Jesus calms the sea and the sky during a storm, and it says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and sea obey him. So whoever you are and whatever your view of God's control, you probably have no problem saying that the winds and the sea obey God. Now let's talk about the controversial part. Everyone agrees God controls nature or the physical world. Where we disagree is God's control over people. So let me just give you some verses about that. Here's Isaiah 45. This is God speaking to Cyrus, who will be, I don't think he's even born yet, he will be the ruler of Persia, and God will use him to take over Babylon. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, loose the belts of kings, open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And he says, And this is Cyrus going out as an unbeliever to conquer the nations. God says, I will go before you and level the exalted places. And then God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. A national, international warfare with an unbelieving ruler, Cyrus, attacking others, destroying cities, creating calamity, and God is saying, I appointed, I anointed, and I appointed Cyrus. I take him by the hand, and I'm the one who's creating darkness and calamity. I do all these things. You have to do something with that. Did God influence Cyrus's will? Is that what he means by taking his hand and appointing him to do this? Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, Cyrus or someone else, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he will. So if you don't believe that God can influence the human will, then you've got to do something with Proverbs 21.1, because it does seem that's what he's saying. Here's Exodus, the plagues are happening, we all agree with that, but this is what God says is happening in Pharaoh himself, 7.3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then 9.16, but for this purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did he influence his will? Judges 14.4, this is when Samson 
goes out, finds a Philistine woman he wants to marry. He was not supposed to intermarry with the nations. And so his parents were not pleased that he was doing this. But then we read, his father and mother didn't know it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. What does it mean that Samson's desire inwardly to do this was from the Lord? Acts 16.14, Paul's preaching in Philippi, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. If you don't think God can influence Lydia's will, then what will we do with him opening her heart to pay attention? Genesis 45, 8, Joseph saying to his brothers who sold him into slavery, into Egypt, he says, actually, God sent me here, quote, it was not you who sent me here, but God. What? Fifty twenty. he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And the it has to do with their wills in deciding to throw him in a pit and sell him to Egypt. God meant it for good. And I finish now with this last passage, Romans 9. This is stated maybe more clearly than anywhere else in the whole Bible. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, even though they weren't yet born. So this is Jacob, Esau. They're not even born yet. They're in the womb. They had done nothing, either good or bad. They are fetuses. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then, Paul continues, is there injustice on God's part? Because you understand that's what you feel when you hear this. That's not fair. They didn't do anything. So why does he choose one over the other? So you say, is there injustice on God's part? And he replies, by no means. Because God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, not on human will, not Did you hear that? Not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That is hard to hear, but I just want to make absolutely certain that you understand I'm just reading from the Bible. So, there are verses on God's control over everything, and they're not vague, they're very clear, but they raise all kinds of questions. So let's get to those questions. And for this, we're going back over to our wise scholar, Elder Dan. And the question we're asking is, Dan, if God really is in complete control, like these verses say, it does seem that we're just robots and we're doing what we're pre-programmed to do. Dan, am I a robot? Again, coming at it from the biblical perspective that was shared with me, and I subsequently embraced in that small town where 
those delicious M&M candies were made, and still are, I would have to say that without God's amazing liberation and grace, we are compelled by our fallen, sinful, hell-bent nature so that we loved darkness and would not come to the sin-exposing light of God and His Word. So much so are we controlled by our own nature that Bible asks the question, Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you as well can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It is our nature. So in one sense, prior to the grace of God, we are controlled by our sin nature. God's gracious revelation tells us that we love our own cruel bondage to our rebellion and sin. Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. There was no power for us to obey God to please God. We were bound by our sin. The wonderful promise of God in Christ is reflected by Jesus' own words in John 8.26, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So, that our liberation from our original sin nature that controlled all of our desires and impulses, unless restrained by God's Spirit and common grace, is so great that we are now free to love and obey God. Paul, again speaking in Romans six seventeen, says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. So, we're not robots as liberated Christian people. We're truly free, liberated from the all-powerful, coercive sin nature to which we can freely, uh, to the point where I should say, we can freely, willingly, gloriously, and happily obey and even please our Creator because of the risen Savior who paid the penalty we were under and freeing us from our bondage and debt. So, I'm always, when I'm asked about this question, I'm always mindful of the passage in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, and there's an act of their volition, an act of their will, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So there they are receiving him, believing on him, and how were they born? Well, the last verse, verse 13, tells us we were born not of the will of the flesh, not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. And to me, that's the crux of the whole issue. It is not that I am a robot and I am under God's severe control, but instead I have been liberated from that death grip that sin had on me. So now I'm free to love, to please, to honor, to obey, to glorify God. So to me, the idea of robot is foreign because of the freedom that Christ gives us. Mm -hmm.